We have two scriptures today for our sermon, both on page 10 in your bulletin. Begin with Proverbs 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drop honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Let strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly he is led astray. In 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. We ask for your blessing with it now, our Father, in Jesus' good name. Amen. So the basic idea in this series on mere humanity is that because God made human beings in his image, God cares about every single aspect of our humanity, all of it. And he has sent Jesus, his son, to redeem all of it, to buy it all back from slavery, to restore all of it, to make all of it good and whole again, because he wants all of our humanity to shine his glory. And so what we're trying to do in this series is we've just taken some pieces, I've called them, from the game board of human life, human things. And with each piece, we're just trying to hear our Father's word about this bit of our humanity. And then we're turning to the world and thinking about how do we live the Father's word in the real world with these things. And we've come now to some characters on the game board, recognizable types of human being. You might be this kind of person. You might meet this kind of person. Last week, the first character we met was the fool. And this week, I want to introduce us to the seductress, or what the writer of Proverbs here calls the forbidden woman. 
a very recognizable character on the game board of human life. Now to understand the forbidden woman, the seductress, we need to recall something about our first mother. So kids, you know your catechism. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve, that's right. And remember mom, first mom, Eve. Now we need to really think about this for a sec. Because this is actually something I saw this week I'd never seen before. <clears throat> There's an interesting little uh, verse in Proverbs 8 where God is forming and then filling the cosmos, right? You see that in Genesis. God forms this house, the cosmic house, and then he fills it up with creatures. And we're told in Proverbs 8 that there was someone at his side working with him. And she's known in Proverbs as Lady Wisdom. Now, this is just God. It's just God's wisdom. It's God working with God, right? There's one God. But God's wisdom, we're told, was with him, forming and filling the cosmos, Well, then he makes man, and he basically says to man, go now do in the world what I have done. Go form the world and fill it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the world, subdue it, take dominion, right? That's, but can Adam do that alone? We can't. He is not good for man to be alone, and so what does God make for him? A helper to be beside him. And what's interesting is, so God and his wisdom are working, and what results from their work and their, their being together and working together is life, a whole cosmos full of life. And that's exactly what's supposed to happen with this union of Adam and Eve, man and woman, husband and wife. That union is designed to produce life, obviously biological life, be, you know, multiply, but through that biological life, social life life, because sustained in part by their sexual love for each other, their ongoing sexual attraction, Adam and Eve are not just going to mate and then leave each other. They're going to stay together and build a household, a strong place where children can not just be born, but grow up and become, you know, strong, healthy human beings. And then these little household kingdoms, these little household units are going to be the building blocks of way more stuff, because out of that household will come an entire tree of father-like, mother-like, son-like, daughter-like, brother-like, sister-like relations in just social stuff way outside the, the bounds of the home. And through the biological and social life will come cultural life because all these human beings and all these relationships, they're going to break open creation and all of its potentials for harmonious and fruitful flourishing together. It's just an absolutely awesome design the life God intended from this union. But you know right there in Genesis, God's wisdom is not unchallenged. There's another voice, a contrary voice, the voice of folly, the voice of sin, the voice of seduction to cosmic rebellion. And just as wisdom is embodied in the valiant wife, folly is, is embodied, the scripture tells us, in the woman who tears down her own house. Worse still is a predator who goes out and seeks to tear other houses down. And there's a very interesting thing that Lady Wisdom says in one of her speeches early in Proverbs. This is God speaking through Lady Wisdom, because it's His wisdom. It's God speaking. Listen to what He says. Those who hate me love what? Come on now. All who hate me, all who hate God's wisdom, love what? They love death. 
Now, what that's telling us is something very, we must know, and that is that the farther, the, the more you move away from God, the more you're opposed to God, you're going to find, the more you follow folly instead of God's wisdom, you're going to find yourself opposing life, including the life that God intended from the sexual union of man and woman in marriage. You will even get to a place far enough down that road away from God when you will think that life is death, and you'll think that death is life. For example, in our godless time today, I just want to take a moment and think about some sexual confusions. As we're thinking about the seductress, I want to begin by thinking about some sexual confusions. Remember, you hate God's wisdom, you end up loving death. Sexual confusions, let's just think about them, they're familiar to you. These are challenges in our time to God's very design for life through sexual union. I'll just briefly mention three. One would be the feminist confusion. The feminist confusion. You know, if feminism only meant advocacy for the dignity of women and the worth of women and the agency of women, it'd be all to the good. But what has been ruinous, I'm tempted to say toxic, in various feminisms is the notion, this is somewhat clumsily stated, but it's actually pretty much the idea that real women are men. That's what's been ruinous in many feminisms, that real women are men, that what makes a woman distinctive as a woman, biologically distinctive, relationally distinctive, she really needs to suppress that so she can function like a man. That's basically what a lot of feminisms have taught. Suppress what makes you a woman so you can function more like a man. And what ends up being the result of this is that women, it's not just an argument that they are equal with men, that would be a perfectly spot-on argument is the argument that they are interchangeable with men, which is an entirely different thing. Now, I'm not going to pause to observe how that confusion has served economic interests, how that confusion has made, it, has made women serviceable to market interests. That would be an interesting conversation to have. But at least as interesting as that is how in the 20th century, as you know, technology made this confusion possible. Because starting with the pill... This story's been told many times. A vast array of inventions has enabled what I call a war on women's bodies in the name of liberation. Women must increasingly be disembodied. They must be somehow able to rise above their actual bodies, suppressing, even in some cases eradicating, their life-giving bodily powers if they're going to be recognized in our world today. You can see how that is a direct challenge to God's design for life, particularly through a woman. Or we might think of the same-sex challenge, confusion. There's a same-sex confusion. You know it well. Of course, the same-sex confusion is that at least in sexual union, men and women are actually interchangeable. You can have a man and a man, woman and a woman, man and a woman, whatever. They're all interchangeable, basically. And think about this as as a challenge to God's very design for life. Infertility lifelessness is not a problem that sometimes besets sexuality between man and a man or sometimes besets sexuality between a woman and a woman as it does say in a miscarriage or barrenness between a man and a woman no in these relationships infertility lifelessness it's not something that occasionally besets these sexual unions It is an essential feature of that sexuality. 
it is inherently unable to produce life. A same-sex couple cannot biologically produce life together. They can have a child, but only through artificial intervention, usually technological intervention, apart from their bodies. Now, isn't that interesting? You can have a child, but only apart from your bodies. And you can say love is love, and that makes a nice meme. But, of course, that statement is true only if sexual love is purely feelings that people have for each other, and sexual love actually has nothing to do with bodies producing life as God designed. So there's the feminist confusion. There's the same-sex confusion, and of course now the transgender confusion. Kind of another level of confusion, because this goes beyond divorcing sexual love from bodily union that produces life. That's the same-sex confusion. This is another kind of confusion, because here in the transgender confusion, the very self that is capable of sexual love is divorced from the bodily organs that contribute to bringing life into the world. Yourself is totally separated from your bodily organs that contribute to giving life. My male organs, or if I were a woman, my female organs may not actually be me. I might be a man stuck with female organs. I might be a woman stuck with male organs. And often the only path to peace, as it's perceived, is to sterilize myself. Notice again the end-of-life giving, to sterilize myself by switching my organs. But I want you to think about that confusion, beloved. I want you to think about that confusion. That is really confused. Because if my male organ that contributes to bringing life does not make me a man... Think about this for a minute. If my male organ that contributes to life-giving does not make me a man, my body is completely irrelevant to my identity as a man, then how could there actually be a mismatch between me and my body? Because my body doesn't affect my identity at all. There's nothing about having those organs that in any way is related to manhood. And therefore, it's not obvious how the man in my head could have a problem with this thing that's in my body because there's no relationship. And yet, in the midst of that confusion, we are now mutilating children by the thousands. Because my real self, in the transgender confusion, is entirely disembodied. It is not actually necessarily connected to my body anymore. It has been cut off from my life-giving bodily powers. And these are confusions. They are challenges, very, very popular, militantly popular, challenges to God's very design, for life through sexual union. But even in less confused times than ours, God's design for life has always faced something else, and those are sexual corruptions. So the seductress, there are sexual confusions in our time, but there have always been sexual corruptions. These are not so much challenges to God's design for life through sexual union, but they are killers within an existing union of husband and wife. And you know these well, too. Sexual corruptions. The most obvious in Proverbs 5 here, you see it described, is infidelity, otherwise known as adultery. And what is this? What is infidelity? It is leaving this life-giving well, this well that can produce children and other forms of life, it's leaving that life-giving well of marital union to go drink elsewhere or to go pour yourself out elsewhere. That's infidelity. 
And I thought about this because I'm sure that it's preaching in a room of people like you all. Most of you in the room, especially if you're unmarried, would say that affairs, affairs of infidelity are things that happen to other people. I mean, if you're unmarried, how could you even have an affair? And most of you who are married would say, that's just would never, ever, ever happen to me. And I want to ask you guys a really sobering question. And I want to take a moment with this. Do you know why seduction works? Do you know why seduction works? Do you know why the seductress is successful? Do you? It's because God made us to want to be wanted. God made us to want to be wanted. And that is a God-given want, and it's inflected somewhat differently in men and in women, I think. Women want to be wanted often in the sense that they want to be prized. They want to be treasured. They want to be cherished. They want to be a kind of centerpiece for someone. Men want to be wanted in a somewhat different way. It's inflected slightly differently often with men. Men seem to desire to be honored, to be esteemed, perhaps even admired. There's something about someone saying, my man, you're the man. It grabs you as a man, being wanted in in that way. And with that God-given desire, beloved, no matter how pious you think you are, you are always potentially vulnerable. Girls, can I ask you something? You think you're not vulnerable to seduction? Infidelity of any kind could never happen to you. I don't mean this to go after you. I just want you to think about it because it's important to know this, especially if you're raising children. Girls, are you telling me that there's no way ever, if you're out in some social settings, and all of a sudden a really, really put-together guy, I mean, he's way cooler than your husband. He's way cooler than anyone, if you're not married, who's ever paid attention to you before, and he starts to notice you. Now, he's, he's respectful. He's not pushy. He's not creepy. He's not sleazy. He's respectful, but he notices you. He, you've caught his eye. And maybe you have some exchanges, and he listens to you. He really listens to you, unlike those other people in your life who know you really well. He listens, and, and he treats you like you matter, and he, he he's obviously thinks you're interesting. And there's a kind of chemistry that starts to happen. And then maybe over the course of time, as you're having these interactions with this really put-together hot guy, he, you notice that this guy kind of goes out of his way in little ways just to make much of you, to, to make sure that you're, you're, you're taken care of. He, he's observant. He's attentive. He, he takes care of you. And over time, you realize you're looking in this guy's eyes, and you can see in his eyes, and, and what you see in his eyes looking back at you is, you're amazing. You are amazing. I, I've just never met anyone like you in my life. And maybe one day at some point in this series of exchanges, he actually drops. He says, you know, you, the, the guy who gets to be with you is just so unbelievably lucky. I'd give anything in the world for someone like you. Are you telling me there could never come a moment somewhere along that road where in a dark, unguarded moment, that guy leans over and whispers in your ear? And he says, I just want you to know I want you more than anything in the world. You tell me you couldn't fall? Guys, it'd be even faster for you. You're out there doing your thing, all of a sudden some cute thing flicks her eyes at you and you just see it in her eye. She's noticed you. She sees you. You interact. She thinks you're intelligent. She thinks you're funny. She laughs at your jokes. She's into you. She thinks you're strong. 
you're telling me over the course of time as she just, you know, she's not pushy, but she clearly, you're in, you're on, you're in her sight. You're telling me there can never come a moment in an unguarded situation where that girl leans over and puts her hand on your arm and she says, I want you. I want you to have me. You tell me you couldn't fall? No chance, Pastor. Well, I can tell you this. If it doesn't happen in the real life, don't we all have moments where we're exploring this stuff and we're on our minds? There are fantasies about being wanted like that, admired like that, cherished like that, in stuff we read, in stuff we watch. Isn't that why porn has a draw? Because the way the girls supposedly look at you, those airbrushed, abused women look at you out of those photos. That's why seduction works, because we want to be wanted. God made us that way. And I've got to tell you, there's something darker. There's something even darker, beloved, and that is, and I want you to know this. I, I didn't enjoy preparing this sermon. I'm not enjoying this now, but we need to pay attention to this stuff, because there's something even darker. It isn't just that every one of us, because God made us to want to be wanted, every one of us could be seduced. You need to be vigilant, the Scripture says. There's something even darker, and that is in every one of our hearts, maybe way down deep where the Holy Spirit has really dealt it, a lot of hard knocks. There is a seducer. There is a seducer who could do the seducing. Girls, I watch this with Christian teenage girls. You would never use your power to turn heads, and you do have a power to turn heads. God gave you that power, but you're telling me you would never, ever use that power to turn heads, to soothe that craving inside of you to be wanted, to soothe that craving to feel powerful and magnetic. You would never toy with an admirer, Girls do this through sexiness, obviously. It's not hard to drip honey. You know, it's just obvious. You can watch girls doing it. It's the mascara. It's the hair flip. It's the neckline. It's the slit in your skirt. It's those pouty lips. It's that look. Want some? And Christian girls do this. Or it's the intellectual girl. You know, the brainy girl who can magnetize people with her intellect and her mental prowess. She's the center of conversation, and she's magnetic, and it feels good. Or some girls, they seduce through need. Help me. And here the white knights come running. It's, a, it's not about him. It's about you. There's a seducer within. And guys, you are the same. We're all the same. I'm the same. Guys, you would never play white knight to some needy girl because it feels good. You would never play Mr. Empathy. I'll take care of you. I listen to you. I understand. Because it gets respect. You think no pastor has ever used that power of empathy to take a woman that was not his? Because you're just empathetic. You're the strong white knight. I'll cover you. I got you. Or others of you, it might come, this seductive thing, it might come through, you know, the hair gel and the car and the Instagram muscles and that tough guy, don't give a flip aura. And you know what you're doing and you catch that girl's eye. Hey, girl, and you've got her. And you know it. And it's not about her. It's about you. You say, I can never do that because I don't even have those kind of powers, but don't you wish you could? And here's the thing, and we didn't know this as we raise our kids in the Lord. The transgression of this stuff, the transgression of seduction, the transgression of sexual sin makes it more attractive, not less. 
You can tell your kids all day, do you see how evil that stuff is? That's what's so attractive about it because there's something about stepping over the line. It feels powerful. It feels daring. It feels alive. You want it. That's why it reels people in. Infidelity. It's corruption. Or there's indifference. Because this is a weird, sad thing, sad to say, in a lot of many, a lot of Christian marriages. Strange, you know, this stuff can go on maybe before marriage, but after a couple is married, sometimes, sadly, all that stuff that makes seduction actually work, that active wanting and being wanted, all that stuff often just drains away in a Christian marriage. And familiarity just starts to breed apathy, indifference. Ladies, I got a question for you. You married ladies. When's the last time you seduced your husband? That doesn't sound very biblical, Pastor. Okay, let me ask it in the biblical language then. When's the last time you offered your husband something that could make a man intoxicated? That's Bible. When's the last time you made him feel like a man? Many people have pointed out prostitutes understand what makes a man feel like a man. Wives just forget or choose to forget too often. Or how about for you men? Indifference. When's the last time you took some time and trouble to figure out what really makes this woman God gave to me feel treasured? And then you just went all out. I mean, really sacrificed men some stuff. Sacrificed some time, some money, some effort, some whatever. Really sacrificed some valuable stuff to communicate to this woman in a way that she responds to. Not in a way you respond to, but in a way that really gets to her heart. There is nothing in the world I prize so much as you. I mean, it might be fixing the sink. I don't know. When's the last time? Indifference is a corruption. And thirdly, idolatry is a corruption because the surest way to destroy sexual love is to idolize it, to treat it like it can be heaven on earth, to, treat, to glorify it in your head, to load it with all these expectations of meeting all of your deepest wants and needs. You think romance and sexual love can fill all of that? Can I just say to you, beloved, and you know this well, but you really, really have to come to terms with this. God is your source. God is your source. There is no other. And if you do not really know that and root yourself in the love of God, you'll be unfit for love, sexual or otherwise. The deepest satisfaction of your heart lies in God and out of the love of God in giving rather than taking. And you can never discover that if you are idolizing romance or sexual love. So we've looked at confusions and corruptions. I just want to wrap up by talking briefly about sexual Christians. The confusions, the corruptions, now let's just talk about sexual Christians. I just want to offer quickly here just a few practical proposals as we learn to live in this world where there are various forms of the seductress. My first practical proposal is, is about Jesus. And I just want to say this. Remember, Jesus crushed the seducer. He crushed the seducer. He never surrendered. One millimeter to the seducer. Every temptation he resisted to the uttermost he is your righteousness. When you fall, when you struggle, 
That's your righteousness. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly for you. You are clothed in his purity. He has taken your sin and given you his righteousness, and you have that before God. It is perfect. It will never fail. That is your righteousness, and that is also your assurance of victory over the seductions that you will encounter in this world. Every seduction is a defeated seduction. Every sin that presents itself to you is a defeated enemy. You fight it in the power of the one who has conquered it. That's our hope. That's how we stand. Remember Jesus crushed the seducer. A second quick proposal. Give your body to Christ's mission. Give your body to Christ's mission. You know, we think about being on mission with Jesus. We're his apprentices. We're his disciples working with him on his mission in the world. But a very basic call of this thing we call discipleship, being with the master, studying under him, working with him, fighting the battles of the kingdom in the world, a very basic part of this, the Bible tells us, is present your members, these are the members, physical members, present them to God as instruments of righteousness in the hands of Jesus. And that means your manly body and your womanly body. If you have a man's body, dear saint, you have a particular mode of Christian mission that your sisters in Christ don't have. God has given you a body and the physical makeup that is capable in a unique way of ministering in this world in fatherly ways, in son-like ways, in brotherly ways. Paul tells Timothy, relate to the older men as fathers, the older women as mothers, the younger men as brothers, the younger women as sisters with all purity. That's a manly mode. And if you have a woman's body, then God has given you a unique mode of mission to relate to others in this world in motherly ways, in daughterly ways, in sisterly ways. That is your calling. Give your body to Christ's mission. Third practical proposal, and this is for all of us, and this is one of my, it should be all of our goal for Trinity Church. It's just very simple. Eradicate porn. Eradicate porn. None of it anywhere. Amen? Porn for the eyes. Porn for the emotions, ladies. No porn. Nothing less than porn-free as a church. Help each other to that end. That just needs to be a goal. Fourth practical proposal for you young ones who are not yet married. Refuse to date anyone who's not interested in building a fruitful household. Just don't do it. Please, 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 can I ask you as a pastor, Just don't date someone who's not interested in building a fruitful household. Don't date. How many times should I say it? If they're not interested in getting married, having children, building a household, building a productive household, a fruitful household that is serving Jesus and his kingdom, then just don't date. Be friends. Enough said. Fifth proposal. Be realistic about marriage if you want to enjoy it. I think, this is a pastoral observation, but I think dreams of perfection are keeping too many from marrying. They're ruining a lot of existing marriages. And they're causing torment for some who are not married. Serving Jesus is life. You do not need to be married to have a good life. You do not need to have sex to have a good life. And if you idolize it, and dream of some kind of perfection or total fulfillment in this, it will keep you from marrying, it'll sour your existing marriage, and it'll cause torment for you if God has not called you to marriage, at least not yet. Serving Jesus is life. we got to grab a hold of that as Christians. Final proposal. 
and there's a whole lot more that can be said about this. I'm not going to say much here. Find some ways, some ways, to raise your children together. Find some ways to raise your children together. We need communal, intergenerational discipleship. Titus 2 talks about this. And there's an interesting comment that a friend of mine wrote in a blog post not recently, finding ways to raise children together. And he talks about the difference between the way that in where he lives, between the way that the Protestant community and the Catholic community relate to children and why they have a different response to children. He says, where I live, when a family has a large number of children relatively close together, now notice this language, which obviously inhibits your ability to achieve middle-class status symbols. So if you really want a lot of middle-class status symbols, it's going to be tough if you have a lot of kids close together. But he said, in my, in my, where I live, when people have a bunch of kids close together, which will clearly cause some challenges in trying to get all these middle-class status symbols, many Protestant evangelicals just don't know how to respond, and they struggle to be enthusiastic because they're into the status symbols. On the other hand, Catholics, he says, in our very conservative diocese, were almost universally giddy whenever we were expecting a child. But... In this city's diocese, larger families are more common, household economies are more common, and an openness to life and a rejoicing in its presence is more widely practiced. Large families are normal for them and supported by them in a way they mostly are not in our experience of Protestantism Protestantism here. And I would actually love to have a whole sermon on this some other time. I am very thankful for what God has allowed us to do in our years together so far at Trinity. But I know a lot of you have struggled. My family has struggled. A lot of us have struggled because when you are busy, as Long Island is, with trying to get all these middle-class status symbols, it is hard to find the time and the resources to raise your children together the way I believe we need to do it if we're going to be intergenerational disciples of Jesus. God has done good things here. There's a lot more conversation to be had about all of that another time. So here I conclude. Paul says in that text we read in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price, and notice the language again, so glorify God in your body. And dear saints, when that's what you live for, as an individual and together, you want to glorify God because he loved you and he bought you with a price. Then the beautiful freeing thing is, the seductress has nothing to offer you, and that's freedom. That's freedom in Christ. Amen. Help us to walk in freedom, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' good name. Amen.